Holy habits. Let's continue in our, our study this morning as we're looking at the series on holy habits. And uh, the theme verse that uh, using for this series is from 1 Timothy chapter 4, 8. 1 Timothy 4, 8. It'll be on the screen. And it reads that physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better. So when we talk about holy habits, sometimes the uh, term spiritual disciplines are used, but sometimes people hear the word discipline and, you know, they kind of, but they're, they're holy habits. They're, there are those things that God has designed that we grow and are trained in godliness. I mean, we are made godly through the cross, through Christ, all right? We're not adding to that, but we are growing in that relationship, kind of like what Jim was saying, part of transformation. That's part of the training and godliness, okay? Applying the work of the cross into life. And so God has given us some various means or ways uh, that help us or become the avenues that we can do that. The first week we looked at the first habit, which was called Bible intake. And that includes all sorts of different things, reading, memorizing, listening to the Word, uh, growing in the Word of God. The second, last week we talked about Prayer as the second habit. Uh, we all need to grow in prayer. And God has designed prayer to be one of those habits to develop us. And uh, this morning we'll look at the third one. Look at this. Uh, I've used this quote every week <clears throat> from a book uh, that I really would recommend by a, a man by the name of Don Whitney, Donald Whitney, called Disciplines of the Christian Life. And this kind of, I use this each week, and it kind of helps us kind of just focus on what we're talking about. The spiritual disciplines are those practices found in Scripture that promote spiritual growth among believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? They're, they're to promote godliness in our life. They are habits of devotion, habits of devotion and experiential Christianity, meaning we're not just talking about the theory of being a Christian, but how do we experience the work of God, okay? The habits of devotion and experiential Christianity that have been practiced by the people of God since Bible times. So that's when we talk about the spiritual habits. That's what we're referring to. And as that scripture, we uh, began that the purpose of these things, if you could just go back to that verse behind uh, that slide there, that the purpose of the training, and I mentioned how this word in the Greek training is the word that uh, eventually evolved into the word uh, for gymnasium. And so in the Greek, it's the word training, meaning that this, this is work. We're not working for salvation, okay? Everybody get that? We're not, that's not what we're talking about. But, uh, but it's really, as Jim said, it's taking responsibility. Hello? It's taking responsibility for growth, for our spiritual growth. And so that's when we talk about the holy habit. So this morning, I want us to look at the third one. And the third holy habit this morning is stewardship of life. Stewardship of life. And we talk about stewardship, the holy habit. It's a stewardship of life. It isn't just, sometimes we hear the word stewardship, and we immediately think about what? Money. And it does involve that. But I, I say stewardship of life because it encompasses much more than that. Sometimes you've heard this, you know, about our, our time, talents, and treasures, okay? Talents being our spiritual gifts, okay? Time, ta uh, talents, money. So all of those things that God wants us to be stewards. And it might be helpful to talk about what is a steward. A steward is a manager who administers that which belongs to somebody else. Many of you tomorrow will be stewards wherever you go on the workplace. You are stewarding resources, budgets, money, people, etc., etc. You might own it. We might have some owners I'm not aware of. But more than likely, you're a steward, an administrator 
of that which is owned by somebody else. If you owned a business, you would hire an administrator to oversee the finances, the personnel. You've hired a manager. So when we talk about being a steward, we're talking about being managers of the resources that God has given us. All right, you with me so far? All right? Uh, By money and time, they're not managing that which belongs to them. Okay? They're managing that which belongs to somebody else. So as followers, as disciples of Christ, uh, if you have committed your life to him, you've been born again, you've been, uh, you're, you're walking in that relationship, uh, the reality of the Bible teaches us that you are only a manager of the resources that you are blessed with, whatever that is, not just money, but all the, the, the treasures and the things of life, everything you have, even your very breath, your very life is, a, is, is our, our bodies. In fact, the Bible says, look in 1 Corinthians, it'll be on the screen, 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For God, speaking to believers, God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. You are, your version might say, you are not your own. Okay, we belong to God when we are born again. By the way, in one sense, all who have been created by God belongs to him. Okay, we're all accountable to him as our creator. But because of the atonement, because of Christ, that his blood has purchased our redemption, therefore God uh, God is the sovereign. We talk about Jesus as Lord. <clears throat> Lord, another word for Lord is master. We say that, but do we operate as whether Jesus really is our Lord and our master? So what are the implications of that verse in 1 Corinthians 6.20? Well, it means that he owns you. He owns me, if you're a believer. He owns your time. There's not a moment in your day that doesn't belong to him. He owns your time. He owns your tongue. There's not a word issued from your mouth except that which would and should be fitting for his glory and honor. We could just stop right there, and I can just, you know, because I can, that's, that's one we all struggle with, right? He owns your mind, your thoughts, your attitudes, your opinions. Uh, he owns your family, your spouse, your children, your job, your house, your clothes, your bank account. You get the idea. So we talk about we, we sing, he is Lord, but is he really Lord? He is Lord, kind of, you know. <laughs> I mean, he's Lord, but this is talking about being a steward. We are managers. We are stewards over the gifts and the things that God has given us. So we're going to look at that kind of as a foundation, talk about stewardship of life today. But before we do that, why don't we pray one more time and ask God to direct us in his word today and encourage us. Um, so relax. We're going to talk about some things. We're not going to get you all riled up. There's no guilt trips, all right? We're called Grace Church for a reason, all right? But we want to look at what the Word of God teaches and just say, okay, then I need, to, I need to be reminded. You ever need some reminders? Listen, I got, it's amazing, I got two sticky notes. You know, I have sticky notes everywhere to remind me of things because I'll forget. So we just, just think of this as a big sticky note all right, from God to remind us of some things, all right? All right, let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your presence in our life, in our church. Lord, we uh, all want to be honorable, uh, good stewards, good managers. Lord, uh, to hear, well done, good and faithful servants. You are Lord, you are master. And so help us through your word today to steer us, navigate us in truth. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be that which is pleasing in your sight, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. There's two passages, two things we're going to primarily look at this morning for time's sake, and that, the first is the stewardship of time, the stewardship of time, okay? We're talking about stewardship of life. We're going to talk about stewardship of time. Ephesians 5, 15, and 16, Paul writes, he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days 
or evil, okay? Making the best use of the time, what you have, because we live in fallen evil days. Now, one thing that's always helpful, and you know this when we teach uh, through Bible books, and we'll be doing that probably uh, in the next month or so, but it's always helpful when you study a book of the Bible is to know, you know, what is ahead of it, what's behind it. And when you look in the book of Ephesians, to know, because that's in Ephesians chapter 5, right? Ephesians has six chapters. So if you kind of divide Ephesians up, chapters 1 through 3, Paul lays a doctrinal foundation of truth, okay? And when he comes to chapter 4, 5, and 6, he makes application based upon the doctrine that he's laid out in chapters 1 through 3. So, for example, he lays out, of course, you know, Ephesians 1, uh, was it, 1, uh, 20, I have the address wrong, talks about being chosen in Christ, our position in Christ, and the work of Christ, and what he's done, and he kind of walks us through that. So when he comes to chapter 4, he's saying, okay, if that is true, you know, as I think about it, it was almost transformation before transformation. I mean, because he's saying, okay, this is who you are. What does that mean? How do you live that out? That's what he's doing in Ephesians. And so when he comes to chapter 4, he talks about, okay, now who we are in Christ determines how we live. So in chapter 4, he talks about the importance of having unity in our personal relationships. He comes to chapter 5, he talks about loving one another just as Christ gave himself for us. And then he talks about walking as children of the light in a, in a, in a world full of darkness. So when he comes to chapter 5 in these two verses, he's writing in the context of uh, living in a fallen world, but as Christians living under the light of Christ, how are we to be stewards of our time? He says, when he uses the word walk, he's not talking about exercise, but he's talking about walking as a, as a way of life. The, the way of life. Walking is how we live our lives, how we go about day-to-day decisions and stuff. So each of us are allotted how many hours in a day? Without exception, 24, right? And it doesn't matter how much you try, you only get 24. We all have got 24. And when we spend it, and, and uh, you know what? You ever watch something? Obviously, you watch something on TV. And after, you know what we do a lot of times? We don't really sometimes watch anything. We spend a couple of hours trying to find out what else is on on every channel. And then we look at the clock and think, I have literally spent 45 minutes to an hour looking at all these gazillion channels I have, and there's nothing to watch. Isn't that crazy? So we, we can't get that back. Or have you ever watched, gone to a movie or something, and you leave there and you think, well, that's two hours. I will never get back. That was a waste of time. Boy, that was a loser or whatever the situation. We've all been there. So what God's Word wants us to give us direction on is seeking in His Word His counsel. Do you realize that when we open His Word, we have the benefit of hearing His counsel into our life? We, we, we hear his wisdom. So when he talks about stewards of time, it means that we are to think, be conscious, be intentional strategically in the time that God has given us. Now, not only do we have 24 hours in a day, but Psalm 139, was that what you read, Psalm 139? It talks about your days, my days are written in your book. He's, the psalmist is saying that to God. That means our days, our 24-hour days, and how many of them we get, they are written in advance in God's book, okay? Using that as a picture. Are you with me? So God knows, well, God knows everything. <clears throat> if you had not figured that out, there you go. That's worth coming today. God knows everything, all right? And so God knows everything, and he literally knows the days of my life. And he knows it up to the very nanosecond that I'm here. I'm not going to be here any longer than he says. I'm not going to be here any shorter than he says because my life was made by him. So in that, for the believer, God wants us to think strategically, intentionally, 
at how to be wise in the use of our time. Notice it says, um, uh, I don't think that version doesn't have it, but your version might say, redeem the time. Redeem the time. The thing, King James, New King James. So what does redeem mean? You redeem, you buy it back. You redeem it. Some of you will not have a clue of what I'm talking about, but I've used it before. Some of you remember S&H green stamps. And you would go to the store to redeem those for a toaster or whatever it is. Whatever it is. Some of you are just clueless, but that was a big deal. That was a big deal. Uh, it means to buy back, to purchase it. You know, uh, a lot of people do these studies and things or whatever. And I thought, again, this is always kind of interesting, kind of very sobering, is that... Um, uh, one study based on an average life of 75 years, all right? So if you're 75 or older, I'm not here to freak you out, but that's just kind of the average, you know? I mean, thank goodness they didn't say 58, you know? I'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm not using that illustration. Um, so just based upon that, the average life, okay, spends 26 years, this is 24-hour days, full year, 26 years Sleeping. Sleeping. Um, 11 years watching television. That's 11, 24-hour day, 11 years watching television. Three years washing clothes. If you've got children, that's probably double than that. Uh, five years surfing the internet. Five months complaining. Five months complaining. That's what they figured. 150 times a day checking your phone. Well, I, you know, my wife will say, yeah, you check that thing. I'm like, oh, I do it a few times a day. She says, no, you do it more than a few times a day. But see, I just want to be a good pastor. I want to make sure that if you're trying to reach me, I, I want to be on the job, right? All right. Uh, how about this? Now, this is, this is just a stat, so it's not meant to, that women spend 136 days getting ready. And men spend 46 days getting ready, all right? I just By the time a child is seven years old, the average child in this will spend a full year, by the time they're seven, have spent a full year in front of the TV screen. So, in other words, for the Christian, here's the deal. For the Christian, God has hardwired us for eternity. Do you realize that? We're, that's why evolution and natural selection, just, even if you're not a, you know, it just goes against, because we are made in the image of God. Do you realize that? We are made in the image of God. We are hardwired for eternity. This is not it. God has created us, uh, as the, was it Don Richardson wrote that book, eternity in their hearts. And so God has created us R.C. Sproul, I love what he coined the phrase. He said, right now counts forever. That means what we do, and so that has to do with our life, that right now there is eternity in mind. There's accountability with God. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount uh, spoke about of how we are oftentimes consumed with the temporary. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, he says, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, all those things. He says the Gentiles, kind of, again, he's speaking to Jews, Gentiles, meaning we would say unbelievers, okay? He said, one version says, they chase after these things. They run after these things. They are consumed with this stuff. But he says, not you. And remember he gives that comparison that if God can create and take care of the earth, the flowers, the birds, all those things, not a sparrow falls to the ground that our Heavenly Father doesn't know it. What does he say? He contrasts the minute to the great. How much more value are you? You're more valuable than a little bird. You're more valuable than the beautiful flowers. But Jesus said something in Matthew 6, Matthew 6, 21, he says, for where your treasure is, your, that is where what? So you see, fundamentally behind our time, our treasures, our money, behind all those things, you see, ultimately, 
It, it, it is a revealer of our heart. It's a heart issue for where you're investing your treasures in. And your treasures, not just, again, money, but time and all those things. He says that is where your heart will be. So we're talking about these things of spiritual issues and that your heart, your, where your heart is, will always be revealed by how you invest your time. We've done this, I've done it, you've done it. We'll say, oh, I don't have time for such and such. But it's amazing the things that you love to do. Isn't it amazing how you will find time to do that, right? I mean, if you love to hunt and fish and do all those things, you could have an 80-hour work week, just dead dog tired, but man, you can't wait to get up at three in the morning and go sit in a little tree house and wait to kill Bambi, right? You just, because that's your thing. You love hunting, right? You want to fish, you, you know, because that's your passion, right? You know what God wants us to do? He wants to have that uh, passion for him. He wants to have those priorities aligned for him. There's nothing wrong with hunting and fishing and having hobbies and all those things, but if they're out of alignment, Hello? If they're out of alignment, he says, hey, let's work on that. Let's, kinda, let's, get, let's get our priorities straight because we are stewards of what he has given us. Um, and so, you know, the time, you know, we start about talking about time. Some of you may have been raised in uh, church settings, and I was to some degree, and, and of course we know other, other groups or whatever, where they kind of have a very legalistic approach you know, what you can and can't do on Sunday and all those things. And, you know, that's just a dead end, all right? You're never going to win that thing. You know, I believe that whatever God directs you to do, that's your conviction. Hey, you need to do it. Whatever's not a faith is sin, right? So if that's where you're at, that's fine. That's fine. But, you know, the Jews and their Sabbath laws, uh, Sabbath uh, was a, again, if God is concerned about time, he set aside a day. Uh, we in the New Testament operate that in a principle. We're not regulated or commanded to keep the Sabbath. Uh, that's not a New Testament truth. But the Sabbath laws were certainly embedded into the life of Israel in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, right? And so you remember when Jesus said uh, to the religious leaders, uh, and I'll paraphrase where he said, you care more about your traditions and the Word of God? Well, what he was saying was that your basis of authority is not what God's Word has instructed us, but in Judaism, and even today, there's what is called the Talmud. The Talmud is a, is a collection of teachings of the rabbis through the years. And so, for example, regarding the Sabbath, you know, the Ten Commandments, you know, keep the Sabbath, keep it holy, right? And so what the rabbis wanted to do is they wanted to help you in how to do that. So in the Talmud, which is these collections, it's not the Word of God, but they're these collections of the teachings and traditions of the rabbis through the years put together in, in, in what's called the Talmud, is that they came up with, uh, at least I came across one list, that was 39 categories of activity that are prohibited on the Sabbath. I thought this was interesting. For example, you can't plant anything on the Sabbath, okay? Uh, because the plant might grow, so no watering, no fertilizing, because that's work, so that's, that's prohibited. I won't give you all 39, okay? Thank you, you're welcome. I like this one. So obviously, if there's no plow, they're planting, there can't be any plowing. Now, I thought this was interesting in the Talmud, uh, it says no plowing because that could be work, but it even warned against dragging a chair leg in the soft soil, thereby unintentionally making a furrow in the ground. They, they wrote just, so if you're not sure, they're going to help you, all right? They're going to help you, all right? Basically, just stay in bed tied down and you probably would be all right. I like this one. Extinguishing a fire. So according to the Talmud, under the Sabbath law, that if there's a fire, let's say your house is on fire, your barn is on fire, your garage, your car, whatever, on the Sabbath, according to Talmud law, 
It says you are forbidden, even when your property is going to be damaged, of putting the fire out, unless there's somebody's life is threatened. So if your car is on fire and your wife is in there, they encourage you to put the fire out, okay? They don't want you to. But if, you're, if there's no human life threatened, burn, baby, burn, all right? That's the way that's, that's doing it, all right? Uh, how about this? This is, I'll read one more. I just found this interesting. Baking or heating food. Any method of heating food to prepare. Now, you're just heating it. Uh, that's prohibited. You can't do that. But it, but it says it's different if you had a salad and you were going to make a salad and you were just cutting the vegetables because you're only changing the size. You're not doing anything to enhance it or enlarge it, all right? Yeah. You get the idea? How many of you are glad you're free from the law? Whoa, man, isn't that great? Wouldn't that be crazy? Now, again, that's not even in the Bible. That's just traditions. But you know what? You and I have grown up in circumstances maybe where a lot of crazy th stuff was said you can, can't do. Some of it, I'd like to believe, had some wisdom at one time. But you know what? They became the measuring stick of spirituality, you know? My parents kind of backslid and, you know, but uh, my mother, they didn't go to church or whatever, but don't go to the movies on Sundays. We don't even go to church on Sunday, right? Because, oh, now that was, and don't play cards on Sunday. So I guess you could just live like hell the other six days, but Sunday, if you kind of, you know, because you know what it, you know what it does? It makes us feel religious. And when we feel religious, we feel like we're, we're kind of adding to the, the scale of what God has done. Because look, God, look at me. I'm doing these things. God doesn't care. If, you, if, it, if it's apart from the finished work of Jesus, it's not going to earn or do you any good. But, but again, don't go to the other extreme. See, that's what happens. We go from one extreme to the other, and that's where, again, we want to hear balance. Let me share with you a few principles. We're talking about stewardship of time. Number one, set aside each day as a gift from God. Realize that every day is a gift from God. Psalm 31.15 says, my times are in your hands. That'd be a good thing to pray every day. God, when I woke up on December 17th at 8.30, I didn't know by that evening I would be at Lakeland Regional Hospital uh, recovering from a heart attack. Just felt like a regular normal day, except till about 9, 10 o'clock. Started feeling different. You never know what the day will bring, right? Every day is a gift from God. And guess what? God is never punched out in your day. He's always on the job, all right? So say, God, this day is a gift from you. Let me use it wisely. Secondly, commit your time to God. Kind of goes alongside that. Every day, God, uh, Psalm 90, verse 12, says, teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Help me to commit this time today for your, for your honor. How about this? Set aside time for God and for others. That's why we're doing this series. That's why we started with the Word of God and prayer to encourage you to every day, somewhere to incorporate a day that you can get into the Word and pray. And that might be on your commute. It might be going and sitting. I remember... Somebody here, when they, they'd go to work early and intentionally get there about 30 minutes, and they would use that time in their, in their vehicle to just pray and, and listen to the Word of God. Whatever it is, set aside time. Uh, and, you know, I don't think any of us would actually be bold enough to say, uh, you know, I don't have time uh, for God. I don't think we'd be that crass. But, you know, we, we, we show evidence of that by how we steward our time. Because, you know, what we do is we do everything first, and then if I have time, I'll do this. I'll do, I'll honor the Lord. And so God's saying, no, let's, let's, let's flip it over. And, and last, take time, not only for God and others, but take time for your own needs. Remember the Sabbath, Jesus said, because he was correcting the erroneous views of their, their concept of what the Sabbath was, in Mark 2, 27, he said the Sabbath Get this, the Sabbath was made for man. It was a day of rest. God doesn't need a nap, okay? That isn't what this means. 
So he's saying, look, you are trying to use the Sabbath as a means to show your holiness, when in reality, the Sabbath was a blessing God gave as a time for rest. And you realize Jesus took advantage of times of rest in the midst of a very busy day. In Mark 6, it says, <coughs> he told his disciples, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Jesus was not adverse to, remember when he was on the boat? What was he doing? He was down in the, in the, in the boat and he was doing what? Sleeping, sleeping. So Jesus recognizes that we need rest. And sometimes rest is doing those things that we enjoy. And sometimes we, we need to incorporate that and be balanced. So part of the holy habit of stewardship of time, God wants us to grow in. But there's also the stewardship, not only of time, but the second aspect we'll look at is the stewardship of money. Now, I've instructed the, the men at the doors to lock the doors for the next 15, 20 minutes, okay? We're going to talk about money. So you're locked in, all right? That's a joke, people. Come on, laugh with me. Enjoy life, all right? Just relax, breathe, all right? Look at this verse in Luke. So we're talking about stewardship of money. Stewardship of life involves money. Look at Luke 16. Luke 16, verses 10 through 13. Jesus said, one who is faithful in a little, in very little, is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, in other words, he's just saying as a principle of life, who's going to entrust you with true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Old King James, I think, says mammon. But you can't serve God and money. People say, well, money's the root of all evil. No, 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 no. The love of money, okay? Listen, God, God has blessed us, and God has given principles all throughout the Word of God concerning finances and money, okay? That's not evil, so don't... don't. Uh, Jesus says, look, here's a principle. You can't be chasing after the money and thinking that is the way you're going to build your security. Jesus says, chase after me, be faithful in me, and all these other things will follow. And it's interesting, the next, uh, it's not on the screen, but the group that were kind of staying around listening to him were the Pharisees, and they were always trying to trip him up. And it says, it's not on the screen, verse 14 of Luke 16, it says the Pharisees who were lovers of money, he said, the Bible says they were lovers of money, heard these things, and they ridiculed him. So Jesus has given us a little, little wisdom here about being faithful managers, faithful stewards. I like quotes, because sometimes a good quote helps us uh, kind of see th some things, and uh, these aren't necessarily Christians, I think one is. But look at, look at some of this. Uh, one guy, James Frick, says, don't tell me where your priorities are. Show me where you spend your money, and I'll tell you what they are. That's true, isn't it? P.T. Barnum, you know P.T. Barnum, circus? Money is a terrible master, but an excellent servant. An excellent servant. That's the way God has designed it. Uh, a couple more. You must, this is Dave Ramsey. You must gain control over your money or the lack of it will forever control you, right? Will Rogers always had a wit. The quickest way to double your money is to fold it in half and put it back in your pocket. I'm going to use that on my kids. That's a great one, right? Now, you know, when the church starts talking about money, uh, you know, everybody gets a little little squirrely and nervous because they think, ah, there you go. You know, church, always talking about money, always asking for money. Uh, I read this about a pastor who was preaching in his congregation, and uh, he was preaching in his congregation. He was trying to get his people more enthusiastic about their church, and he was preaching, and in his sermon, he said, if this church is going to get anywhere, it's got to learn to crawl. And the people said, amen, let it crawl, Rev, let it crawl. And he said, you know what? That's not good enough. <clears throat> After it learns to crawl, it's got to learn to walk. Man, they stood up, amen, let it walk, preacher. 
Let it walk. Preacher got so excited. He said, you know what? Crawling is good. Walking is good. But I tell you, if the church is going to have an impact in our, in our community, this church has got to learn to run. People stood up, man, cheering, amen. Let it run, let it run. He said, now, if we're going ha- to run, if we're going to run for Jesus, it's going to take money. And they all stood up and said, let it crawl, let it crawl, right? So we get a little, we get a little uh, nervous when we talk about money, but notice some principles in God's word. Another, number one, money is a trust. You realize that? It is a trust. It's something God has entrusted to our care. Something, as we said, part of a steward, is that it all belongs to him. So he's given it to us as a trust. He's given it to us to use and invest on his behalf. And that's why the principle Jesus says that if you're trusted with a little and you don't show wisdom there, you're not going to be probably given much. Money is something God has entrusted to us. Also, money is only a tool. It's a tool. He expects that what we will use uh, is not only to care for our needs, but ultimately is that it is used for the advancement of his purpose and his cause or his kingdom, and that's when it means to be a tool. And so we see the money and resources. Why do I want to be a good steward at managing the resources that God has given me so that God can bless me that through my, the generosity uh, that God has given into my life, I can in turn be generous to his kingdom purpose and his endeavors. Uh, one verse uh, that I, I always note, uh, Deuteronomy 8.18. Now, this has been one of the most misused verses that folks that are kind of in the prosperity group will use because it says, and you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. And they stop right there, right? How many of you ever heard that in a way that's the, hey, he's giving you the power to get wealth? Well, that's true. But it isn't for you to go out and get a Mercedes and a, and a BMW and a bigger house and a bigger this and more this and all that. That's not the purpose. What is the purpose? And it says it right in the next sentence. He's given you power to get wealth so that, or that, he may do what? Establish his covenant. In other words, God has enabled you to have a good job, to have good resources and all these things, because the way that God has intended to finance kingdom work is through our obedience concerning our treasures. Do you see that? Because I'll repeat it. Do you see that? It isn't about just you get more stuff. You gain more, you become a wiser steward so God can use you more effectively for his purposes. All right, so it's a tool. Also, money is a test. It's a trust, a tool, it's a test. I think that was part of what Jesus was saying there in the the verse earlier, that God gives us something of lesser value to see if we can handle something of greater value. It's a test. It's also a thermometer. How we spend, one of those quotes kind of alluded to this, how we spend reveals the truth about our spiritual priorities, doesn't it? How we spend money. Uh, I remember one pastor said, you know, when people get baptized, of course, this is obviously a Baptist pastor, he said, we ought to make sure that they put, keep their wallet in their pants when we baptize them so their wallet gets baptized when they get baptized. Now, he was kidding, okay? But you get what he's trying to say. And that's where sometimes there's a dichotomy. Oh, this is my spiritual life, but when it comes to my money and all the things that God, oh, that's, that's mine. And that's why we said that earlier. It isn't yours. It is all of God because God owns you and he owns all your stuff. And God has given it to you to be a wise steward, manager for his kingdom purposes. So money can serve like a thermometer. What does a thermometer do? Tell you whether it's hot or cold. It'll give you a reading of the spiritual temperature of your life, okay? So that's what money is, the stewardship of money. Now, let me just make a side note. And share just briefly uh, the giving principle in the New Testament, okay? 
Because it does, part of our uh, issue a lot of times with money is uh, not only being good stewards in our own finances, but also that is the way that God has designed to finance the local church is through the faithfulness, the consistent faithfulness of his people. That's the reason I highlight, you know, our giving because that's a testimony of God's work in his people. Amen? That's worthy of celebrating, all right? So in the Bible, there's a scripture, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4. I'm just going to say something briefly. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through uh, uh, 4. And it says, now regarding, uh, regarding your question, I'm going to read it from the screen, the New Living Translation. I like the way it reads a little better. Now regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem. So let me real quick. The church at Corinth, they are pagan Gentiles who've gotten saved by Jesus under the gospel. They weren't Jews ethnically or heritage, but they came to faith in Christ through the gospel mission advancement of Paul and the ministry there. And the church in Jerusalem, the people of God in Jerusalem, the Christians were under severe financial strain and hardship. A lot of it had to do with uh, because they had received Jesus. They were kicked out of synagogues. They were uh, maybe lost jobs, and they were kept from buying and selling, and they were being persecuted. So look at this. The, this former pagan group in Corinth, what are they doing? They're taking a collection to send to fellow believers in Jerusalem. All right? Pretty cool. So Paul says, this is the apostle, the apostle Paul. So he says, you should follow the same procedure. And just stop there before I go to the next verse. So he's saying, you should follow the same procedure I gave to the churches, plural, in Galatia. So what Paul is, I think what we need to note here is Paul is giving an apostolic command. He's saying, I'm telling you how you should go about doing this just like I consistently told the other churches. This should be the normative practice, okay, concerning the collection of monies. All right, go to the next verse. Now, the numbers in between are my points, all right? So I want you to see a couple of things. What does he say? The instruction that he's given to this church. Now, this is what's interesting. The church in Corinth, when this was written, was roughly about the year 55, Jesus died on the cross about the year 33. So this is, what, 20-some-odd years ahead. So within 20 years or so, roughly numbers, we see that the church already was established in meeting on what day of the week? First day. Isn't that what it says? They weren't meeting on the Sabbath. They weren't meeting on Saturday. Okay, they were meeting on the first day of the week and they were gathering together like we are doing on the first day of the week. Okay, so they didn't just some haphazard thing, some denomination came up. That's what it says. They gathered on the first day of each week. So first of all, the giving should be done regularly. Okay, our giving, talking about our stewardship of finances concerning our commitment to the local body, the local church, is that it should be done regularly. They said when you meet on the first day of the week, it should be a regular, consistent pattern. How many of you have to pay your electric bill every month? What if you just said, hey, you know what? I really prefer to go to that one-quarter plan. Don't bill me every month. I only can do it once a quarter. Maybe once a year. Put me on that plan. You'd be having candles in your house, right? Your spouse would be fanning the, you know. They don't work that way. But we think somehow that, you know, listen, we have expenses and needs in order to do what we have to do as a body. So the first day of the week, it should be regular giving. Notice, secondly, it says, and your version might say, as that person prospers. This is why I like the New Living Translation. Second point, not only should it be done regularly, it should be done proportionally. It should be proportionate giving. Secondly, put aside a portion of the money you have earned, okay? It says put aside a proportion of the money that you have earned. So if a person who is poor, they're going to have less to give after deducting their expenses and needs. The wealthy are going to have more to share. 
the amount, sometimes we put such an emphasis upon a, an amount and a percentage, but listen, God puts the uh, emphasis upon the heart attitude. You get the heart in alignment, you don't have to worry about all the other. Thank you. Thank you. Get the heart in right order. You remember Jesus when he was standing and watching them come into the temple and he saw a widow come in and he had just observed some of the wealthy religious folks that would give a lot in the treasury collection there outside and he saw the widow come in and give two copper coins and he said that she in actuality gave more than all these wealthy people because she gave, they gave out of their wealth but she gave out of what? Her poverty. You know what the difference was? Her heart was right. God wants our heart. And when he gets our heart, he gets our time, and he gets our money. So not only is giving, New Testament should be regularly, it should be in proportion, all right? And then thirdly, I, I like this, and this may be a little, uh, maybe not as clear, but I, I want to just, he says, don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. And so giving should not be without pressure. Paul is saying, and I never saw this before until I uh, pulled that up. He's saying, look, do all this ahead of time. Because when I get there, me, the Apostle Paul, capital A, Apostle Paul, and I pull up to the church because I'll have my own parking spot reserved for the Apostle. Kidding. And by the way, you don't see any of those around here. The pastor was worried about where he's going to park. I said, if you're doing your job, you'll be there before everybody else, and you'll probably leave after everybody else. So don't worry about what you're going to park. All right? You're not, you're, not a, you're not a star. All right? Anyway. He says, look, we don't want the people to be under pressure. So do it before I get there. So that when I get there, we can just focus on other stuff. I like that because giving should never be pressured. I've been, I grew up in settings where there was always pressure in your spirit, you know, and we won't get into that. That is not new covenant giving. The New Testament instruction on giving focuses on the heart, focuses it on worship. That's the reason we had that graphic. We say, it says worship through giving. That isn't just some, it's intentional because part of our giving is part of our worship, all right? And so we should have that mindset. Be good stewards of our time and money, you know, and one of the things that kind of is just drawn it to some conclusion, one of the things that I appreciate when we did the financial piece, but I think it's true of any, any work of being a good steward, <clears throat> is take inventory over how you're spending your time and how you're spending your money. That's one of the things they, first things they do. Where are you spending your money? You know, if you were a business and you didn't know where your money was going, you're not going to last very long. So if you don't know where you're spending your money, you're like, oh my goodness, we're spending $80 a month at Starbucks. And you can't do the other priorities? You figure it out. Also, not only take inventory, the Lord's put on my heart, I'm not going to tell you because that would be, but the Lord's put on my heart to set some goals in my giving to do more. Not just here, but in other areas. Set some goals. Trust God. And really, that's the, that's the last thing, is when it's all said and done, you've got to have faith. You've got to trust God. If you're always waiting to get it together before you can start, guess what? You will probably never, you'll never start. Here's a phrase that I'm really thinking of coining and marketing as a, as a, as a phrase, uh, and I just have great vision, t-shirts, all sorts of stuff, and it's the phrase, just do it. I bet you've never heard that before. I bet you've never heard that before. Just do it. Start somewhere and just do it. Just start. And that's with time, talents, treasures, all these things go all together. Just, 
And here's the guiding principle, I think, really. Jesus, it, it, it just always should be forefront. Matthew 6.33. Matthew 6.33. What's the priority? He says, and this is after. He's talking about not chasing after all this stuff. He says, seek first. What's the first priority? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things, if you want to know what all those things are, go back and read what was previous. What you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, where you're going to live. All these things will be added to you because you're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Last story. Some of you know who John Wesley is. John Wesley and his brother Charles Wesley, God used in a mighty way in uh, England in uh, the 18th century, uh, 1700s, used them in in starting a revival movement, uh, later became known as the Methodist movement. Um, Sadly, the Methodist movement has departed much from, uh, from Wesley's vision, but nevertheless, Wesley was a wonderful, godly, uh, warm-hearted servant of God. And uh, one day, John Wesley's house burned to the ground. And some people found him and said, uh, Brother Wesley, we are sorry to tell you this, but your house just burned to the ground. And John Wesley said, that's impossible. They said, no, John, your, your house burned to the ground. And Wesley said, it's impossible. John, we, we, we saw with our own eyes, your house burned to the ground. It's gone. Now listen to what Wesley said. He said, that's impossible. You see, I don't own a house. God gave me a place to live in. I only managed that house for him. If he didn't put the fire out, then that's his problem. He'll have to get me another house and put me somewhere else. You see, Wesley understood what the Bible tells us is we are only stewards of God's blessing. We really own nothing. You never saw a hearse with a U-Haul attached to it. What is done for Christ lasts for eternity.